0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this program hosted by the Inclusion Initiative of the London School of Economics. It's uh, 8 a.m. in New York, actually 5 a.m. in San Francisco, 9 p.m. here in Singapore, 1 p.m. in London, and we have panellists and members of the audience joining us live from right round the world. My name is Litfei Siddiqui and I'll be chairing the panel today. Some quick housekeeping points. This event is being recorded and we expect to publish the recording on our channels. Uh, it's also going out on Facebook Live. We'd like this to be as interactive as possible, so please ask questions on Zoom using the QA function, and please do identify yourself when you're asking the question. Today, on November 24th, 2021, we celebrate one year of the Inclusion Initiative, TII, thanks to the generous donation of the Nesbit and Laura families. In this brief period, TII has made quite a splash under the directorship of Dr. Grace Lawden. TII has published research in major journals, in international media, conducted numerous events, public and closed door, produced thought leadership on our rapidly changing working context, already making impact, engaging with, influencing the industry across the seas. Grace may elaborate on some of the projects that are underway, but I'm particularly excited about the Growth and Governance Hub that will be launched in February, which will create measurements for the S in ESG, and thanks to funding from the nunner Family Office. So, let's jump straight in. Inclusion in Global Markets, that is our title today. What is the state of the union when it comes to diversity and inclusion in global organizations operating in global financial centers? No, seriously, behind the corporate PR, how is it actually going? How have inclusion policies evolved over the years and how effective are they today? What have we learned? What has changed for the better? What has become worse? What are some of the useful lessons and what are some of the issues to watch out for? These are the questions that I'm looking forward to exploring with our panel. I hope you'll all appreciate just how distinguished and accomplished these industry leaders are and the diversity of perspectives, backstories and personal journeys that they represent. I will introduce each one of them one at a time just before I invite them to make their opening remarks. Once we've heard from Bear, Dawid, Ida and Philip alphabetically, Uh, in that order, Grace will share some insights from behavioural science and present a new framework that we've been working on to help make teams more inclusive and effective. Okay, so Beatrice Martin. Bea is global group treasurer and group CEO for UK at UBS. As treasurer, she manages liquidity, funding, capital, And allocation of financial resources to align with group strategy. She also drives cross border business strategic initiatives across the group and plays a leadership role in regulatory and operational matters. Previously, she served as managing director at Morgan Stanley, where she was head of European fixed income bank solutions and a member of the interest rate and credit operating committees. Just last week, I saw that Bayer was named outstanding top 20 ally executive role model in London. There, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And your opening remarks, please.
2: Thank you, Ludwig. This is my absolute pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Inclusion, diversity, and inclusion is certainly something that is very, very close to my heart. I think on all the accomplishments that you've mentioned, I think the outstanding is probably the most recent one and one I am really proud of. I think it's been really interesting to see how the DE&I agenda has been evolving over the last years in the banking space, as Ludwig alluded to. Actually, I met Ludwig many years ago at Deutsche Bank as we were both uh, trainees on the train um, and then went to Morgan Stanley, I came here. So my whole professional life, I've been in banking and I quite enjoy uh, the banking industry. There is no doubt that there is much more to be done in, uh, with regards to the ENI, so diversity, equity um, and, and inclusion. And <clears throat> banks have already done a lot. And I'm very happy to you know, be here today to talk about the thing that's with, that we've done. The things that we think we can do better. I think for me, you know, it's been an amazing professional career because I never actually saw myself as somebody that was different in the banking industry. I never saw myself as a diversity candidate. But, you know, it's really interesting as I grew up in the organization, the realization of where decisions are being made in the senior banks and how important is to be inclusive of different perspectives. And you get that through gender, you get that through ethnicity, you get that through uh, social background. So there are many ways to be inclusive in the global markets. And so I hope today we're going to have a great discussion about that. And I'm really, really looking forward to it.
1: Great stuff. Thank you so much, Bea. I'll come back to you with uh, a question that I've just noted down. Um, next up, it's uh, David. David Conate Aholi, founder of the award winning pensions advisory firm, Reddington. David started his career as a barrister of Lincoln's Inn, subsequently spending 16 years as an investment banker. In 2006, he left Merrill Lynch and co founded Reddington and subsequently Malus Street which is now the established specialist online community for the UK pensions industry. Most recently, David co-founded 10,000 Black Interns, which, as the name suggests, is placing 10,000 talented Black graduates in firms across 24 sectors in the United Kingdom over the next five years. David, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Over to you.
3: Well, Luffy, uh, thanks so much for this opportunity. It's a real Privilege. I've known you and followed you, you know, close and afar for many years. Of course, you're great friends, as I think is be with my co-founder uh, and business partner Rob Gardner, and uh, my co- my co-conspirator. We like starting stuff together, and our journey began, I want to say, almost 20 years ago together. So, you know, uh, I was I was a Merrill guy, and I was hearing all things amazing about. Deutscher down the road. And even when you, Rob, came to join me at Merrill, the first year already told me was how much better Deutscher was at everything that uh, everything that we did. And your name, Ludwig, came up a lot. I know he holds you in in, in his huge regard. So thank you again for, for inviting me. I guess, look, I mean, I've been in this industry now for I uh, over three decades now, maybe 34, 35 years. I started life as a lawyer, as you said, and then I became an investment banker. It was a pretty circuitous route. And for most of that time, I mean, you know, I think a bit like B, I didn't see myself particularly as a diversity candidate. I just got on and did my job. But, you know, my career had started at at the bar. And I just tell this story because it kind of illustrates a little bit what I like to call a kink in the hosepipe. You know, you're out watering the garden and the water stops flowing and you realize that there's, you know, you think someone turned the tap off and then you realize, oh, no, it's actually there's a kink in the hosepipe. Right. And so you unkink it. And then you realize that the water still doesn't flow. So you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then you realize actually there's a lot of kinks. So you unkink all the kinks and then the water flows. And I think life is sometimes a bit like that. There are kinks in the hosepipe. And particularly if you come from a minority, then there are specific kinks that, that you face as if you're a woman uh, or if, if there's maybe something from a race perspective or um, neurodiversity. There's a whole bunch of different kinks, different people And my example was 1987, I think. I was trying to get my job as a barrister, junior barrister, and I wanted to get taken on for pupillage, which is what the bar calls uh, rather quaintly calls their internships. And so I had this interview and it it went pretty well. It it was all pretty good. They liked me, I liked them. We cracked some barristerial jokes, it was all very cool. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe I can make it here. And then I got a message, which was that we liked you a lot and you can definitely come and do the internship but we're not going to take you on afterwards. We can't give you a job afterwards. And I was like, oh, okay, well, why not? Because that's the whole point of the internship was that you'd get a job. And they said, well, it's a little delicate. We hope you understand, but we took on a black guy last year and we're not going to do it two years in a row. We just, there's just not, not what we want to do. And so you can come do the internship. Hopefully you learn a bunch of stuff, but at the end of it, you're going to have to go somewhere else. That's a kink in the hose pipe, you know, my friends, that's what it looks like. And you know, everything's cool. Everything's good. It's all great. And then boom, the, the hose kinks. And I tell you that because I think that a lot of people experience that. It may not be race, it may be gender. And I talk to a lot of people now, you know, over these last 30 years, I've been getting on with life, doing my thing. But in the last two or three years, I've talked to more and more people, usually people of black heritage, they kind of, you know, they gravitate towards me, uh, I guess because I'm a black guy and I've been around for a while. And we have these conversations and they sort of tell me their their story. And, the story is, you know, I'll give you a couple of stories just to illustrate the kind of things that people will, people will say. So this is a story from a lady called Grace. And Grace basically came to see me for a coffee. I could see she was quite emotional, quite upset about, about things. And I was kind of, you know, I said, you know, tell me your story, Grace. And she said, okay, so here's the thing, you know, I grew up uh, the child of a single mother, uh, just over there, just over the river. So this is the city of London. And just over there, she said, you know, I used to look across and see the bright Shiny buildings. And I never knew what anybody did in there, but I thought, wow, you know, I could see them buying their, you know, six pound uh, flat whites. And I thought, wow, what must it be like to, to work there? And she said, you know, it's just me and my mom. And, you know, I went to a pretty bad school, but there was a teacher there. And the teacher kind of said, you know, Grace, you're actually pretty bright. You could go far. You could do, you know, I think you could go to university. So she worked hard. She got her maths. She did well. And then she eventually became an actuary. And her big dream was to one day find a job here. And she found a job in the city and she was, you know, she she was in middle management in an asset manager that you will all know. It's a household name. And so I said, well, that all sounds pretty good. You know, what's, what's, what's the problem? And she said, you know, now that I'm here, I don't know how to be now that I'm here, I don't know how to be. And then she got, you know, she got, I could see she was visibly distressed and I said, well, give me an example. What does that mean exactly? We don't know how to be. She said, well, I'll give you an example. You know, I, just this morning, I was in a meeting. It was me, and it was six guys. Uh, and we all represent our little divisions. And she was in Treasury, I think, so she was representing Treasury. And there were these other six guys around, all middle-aged, white guys. And she said, you know, there's nothing in that particularly, but she said, this topic came up. And I knew the answer. A question came up. It was a pretty important question. I knew the answer. And before I could say it, one of these other guys came in, and he gave his answer, and it was the wrong answer. But everyone kind of just took it and went with it. And I knew it was the wrong answer, but somehow I couldn't, get, I couldn't get my answer out. And then the meeting was over and it happens every week. And that's what I mean. I don't know how to be. So I said, well, Grace, but why didn't you knew the answer? Why didn't you say it? And she said, I don't know. There was this voice in my ear that was just saying, you know, they're all men. And, you know, I'm the only woman in the room. And I've never really known how to be around men because I didn't have any brothers. My dad was never around. So I'm a bit intimidated when there's six men in the room. And somehow I just, you know, and then there was another voice in my ear saying, well, of course, you're the only, you're, you're black as well, right? They're all white. Pretty much, they don't really, they don't really care what you've got to say with these two voices. And before I could process it all, the moment had gone and it just always happens and I don't know how to be. And I walked away from that and I just thought, you know, that is just, that's just a terrible, terrible situation, you know? And this is how it was for her every week. And then I realized there are many, many people like that. There are many people in our organizations who don't feel heard, who can't get into the conversation for whatever reason. And the more I talk to it, a lot of women basically. I tell that story. and They're like, "Yeah, I, it happened to me all the time." That's that's like that's that's a, you know that's the thing, and it can be about race, or it can be about gender, or it can be about the intersectionality where you get both of them together. But that I think is something that plays out, and it's you know shame on that company that that's that's how it is at that company. You know, all it took would have been taken was for one guy in that room, the leader, to have just said, "Grace, this is your area. What what do you think about this?" And the game would have been different. I didn't have to be that. way. And so this is, I think, the story, right? It's not that the, the organization is essentially racist in the worst sense. It just doesn't care. It doesn't see grace. She's kind of hidden in plain sight, right? She's in the room, but nobody cares what she's got to say. And she doesn't feel able to get in. And they don't make her feel welcoming. It's this inclusion point where she doesn't feel like she belongs. And, I, and you know, she said, you know, I think I'm just going to leave and I'm just going to go and set up a cake shop because I know i to make cakes. And over there, I'll be my own boss. And I thought that is just tragic, right? Here is someone yeah. who kills herself to do this stuff. And now... Here here she is. I mean, I could give you more examples. There's some other fabulous examples of people telling me these sorts of things, but I'll leave it there, Ludfi, and then maybe we can get into it as we go. Thank you very much. That echoes and resonates.
0: Can I add one thing, Luffy? So it's, it's interesting, David, what you say. Um, Erica Brodnock um, here at the Inclusion Initiative re- um, led some research that was specific to black professional women. And exactly what you said came through in that research, you know, being in the room and not necessarily even being heard when you're actually speaking up. So I think yeah. it, it's a really powerful narrative.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for
1: that. Excellent. Thank you for that, uh, David. Um, next, it's uh, Ida, Ida Liu joining us from San Francisco, very, very early in the morning, interrupting family time, Thanksgiving weekend. Really, really grateful, Ida, for, uh, for you being here. Ida is global head of the private bank at Citi. She began her career in investment banking and as a fashion executive, then joining Citibank in 2007 to launch a business focused on clients in the fashion, retail, and entertainment practices. She founded Citi Private Bank North America's Asian Client Group and is a member of the Citi Women's Steering Committee. She's amongst Barron's 100 most influential women in U.S. finance in the top 20 of American bankers' most powerful women in finance and was recently named co-lead of Citi's Asian Heritage Network. Ida, welcome again. Thank you and your opening remarks, please.
4: Lufthi, firstly, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with all of you. And of course, with the esteemed panelists here as well today, Um, we view diversity and inclusion as a competitive advantage. I think it is a direct correlation the diversity on our team and the performance that our team generates. Uh, we love having an inclusive environment where we have innovative ideas generated from multiple viewpoints, differing backgrounds, and a very global scope. So we've always had that uh, at the, the heart of what we're doing here at City. And I wear a very unique hat, I would say, in that, I am looking to not only break the glass ceiling, but I'm also looking to tear down the bamboo ceiling. And having sitting in this unique position and looking at both, I can honestly say that we have made a tremendous amount of progress over the last decade on the glass ceiling. Uh, in other words, in, in finance, uh, having Jane Fraser as the CEO of City, we've effectively shattered the glass ceiling for women in uh, our institution. Now, flipping over to the other side of it and looking at the bamboo ceiling, being an Asian uh, working in financial services, I must say that we still have a lot of work to do When you look at the number of Fortune 500 CEOs who are of Asian descent, you can count them on one hand. In other words, it's only a few percent. Uh, When you think about the programs that corporate America have put together when we talk about diversity and inclusion, because we believe what gets measured gets done. We have not measured Asians as a group. Why in the past? Because let's face it, it's true. We are often grouped together as the model minority, or frankly, to David's point earlier, the silent minority. And the reality is that when we're talking about Asians in particular and the underrepresentation in corporate America and more broadly, the silent minority and model minority are very, very harmful. We all know that in order to advance in corporate America, you need to have a voice, you need to speak up, you need to advocate for yourself, you are your own best cheerleader. And that is absolutely 100% contrary to the way that we were raised as Asians uh, in, in the cultural beliefs of being modest, humble, and not touting your accomplishments. So recognizing all of this, we are obviously working to make advancements and to equalize and measure and define progress. Uh, and as Lufti had mentioned, I'm very honored and privileged to also take on the hat as the co-head of our Asian Heritage Network here at City, which I am thrilled about because we believe what gets measured gets done. We have a lot of initiatives. We have all of our senior leaders looking at the numbers and we together are gonna continue to move the needle. So thank you for having me, Lufti.
1: Thank you very much, Ida. This brings us to Philip Fernandes. Philip, I'm again, uh, very grateful to you. You're joining us at now 9.20 p.m. from Singapore and waiting patiently from there. So, Philip Fernandes is treasurer and member of the Group Management Committee of DBS. Uh, Philip and his team have received numerous awards, such as the Bank Treasurer of the Year and the Asset Asian Awards, IFR Asia Issuer of the Year. He's a fellow at the Singapore Institute of Banking and Finance. Previously, he was head of Market Risk and has also served as an adjunct associate professor at the Singapore Management University for six years. Philip, uh, please set the scene for us with your opening perspectives.
5: Thanks, Luffy. Um, I hope you all can hear me clearly. Yes. All good? All yeah. good. Yeah. So um, I was really impressed with the stories that Ida, David, and Beatrice had to say. Um, my own journey is somewhat different. I grew up in Singapore, I'm Singaporean, born and bred. Um, and I guess I was fortunate in that the countries always had a certain commitment to multiculturalism. So, growing up, um, I was very fortunate in that sense. And um, I actually went to university on a scholarship. I mean, I couldn't find myself, so I, um, I, I got a bursary of sorts from the bank to study at Cambridge. And I was lucky enough to be admitted to King's College. So, for those of you who don't know the sort of typology of the Cambridge colleges back in the 80s, and I, I am that old, um, you know, the, uh, uh, they were the preserve of people from certain schools, let's put it that way. And you might get the occasional person from somewhere else, but uh, I, I certainly did not fit the mold. And later on, I discovered that my college, which I applied to really out of a hat, actually had a very definitive policy for looking in the places that other colleges didn't look. So King's at Cambridge had a very strong commitment to taking candidates from disadvantaged backgrounds who might have struggled to get up. And I guess in that sense, I, I really benefited from, from that. And the interesting thing, and the really interesting thing for me was most of the other colleges at that time did not follow this policy. And they, they went to the traditional schools and, you know, nothing wrong with having gone there, but uh, to take X percent from that just implies that you've got some selection bias built in. And as, at that time, King's actually used to regularly top the Tompkins table because they would hunt in all the schools that nobody else was looking in, and they'd get all the top candidates, and they would actually top the table of all the 30 colleges. So the point I'm making is that if you employ diversity and inclusion, it can be a market differentiating strategy. Subsequently, nearly all the Oxbridge colleges have done the same thing. And King's has now moved down the Tompkins table and is maybe somewhere between six and 15, it varies each year. So they've gone back to the pack because the diversity benefit that they had has been sort of a strategy that everyone else has followed. So that's one example I would give about um, how if you build a diverse team, and you know I, I agree a lot with what Bea and, and Ida said, if, if you can actually build a diverse team, and, and, and we do in the bank. Um, I think the outcome you get is just outperformance, outperformance in a big way. So you have to look past the cultural rough edges. You have to look past the communication stuff. You've got to figure out, do you go out and drink tea together? Do you drink beer together or whatever, right? I mean, you've just got to find the ways that, that people can gel. But I think of it as analogous to say, since we're all finance folks here, I think of it as analogous to monetary policy. You've got your ultimate targets as a central bank, you know, you're targeting inflation, you're targeting full employment, but you've got proximate targets, which lead you to your ultimate targets, right? So you target the interest rate, we target the FX rate, depending on which part of the trilemia you're playing, in order to get you to your ultimate targets. So I think when we look at gender diversity, when we look at uh, um, race diversity, generational diversity even, um, those to me are the proximate targets that are very important. And we've got to make sure that we don't lose people at that stage. But if we do that right, I'm, I'm very convinced that you get to a much better place. I've seen it happen at work. I've seen it happen you know, at, at my college, as I was saying. So uh, very happy to support this initiative. At the bank, we're very uh, committed to this. Um, gender diversity is something we worked on a lot. Um, we're not there. There's still a gap, but a lot of that is women in technology. I, I think there's a particular gap there that uh, we've not been able to fix and uh, very interested in people have any any thoughts on that. But overall, um, very committed to this from a personal background as well as a work background. And uh, really uh, look forward to, to hearing hearing the experiences of other people in the panel and, and folks on the call.
1: Thank you, Philip. And uh, that's a great way of framing it uh, monetary policy with proximate and ultimate targets. And I noted down your point that hopefully, hopefully we, don't, we don't lose people along the way as we go from, from the proximate to the ultimate target. And now to our very own Dr. Grace Lawton. As you know, Grace is the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative, TII, and an associate professor in behavioral science at LSE. She's an expert advisor to the UK government, sitting on their skills and productivity board. She's a prolific writer, not only in academic journals, but also media such as the FT. Uh, She's also author of the book, Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. Hello, Grace.
0: Hi, lovely. Thank you so much. Um, I I did an interview. So the Inclusion Initiative, as Luffy told everyone, is one today. And I did an interview yesterday evening speaking about it. And somebody said to me, did you start with financial and professional services because they're the worst sector when it comes to inclusion? And I honestly said, no, I started because they're the best, because they're having the conversation. They're trying to make the changes. They're setting targets. They're setting quotas. If we look at other industries, you know, technology, Luffy mentioned, mentioned government, even academia, we're not having the same conversations that are happening within the financial and professional services sector. So I do think that I picked the low-hanging fruit. And I know that because everybody who's on the, the call today are, are people who, if I don't know you, I have been a fan of you and a fan of the work that you've actually been doing. So thank you. And thank you for kind of opening the door to having conversations like we're having in the inclusion initiative. Um, if I think about the blockades, um, and again, this will probably be no surprise to the panel, but hopefully a little bit for the audience. I see two. So I think the first is that in many companies, inclusion is still within the human resources function. And that basically means that human resources are seen as the people who should create diversity and inclusion. And depending on the manager who you encounter, they may or may not, may not hold the belief in diversity and inclusion. And I think, you know, the next decade, firms will have a competitive advantage if they move towards bringing it into the business, which I know City has done, EIDA, actually, even in, even in its markets, bringing it into the business and really embracing the idea of inclusive leadership. So unless you're an inclusive leader and have the tools to be an inclusive leader, then you shouldn't be within that organization. And you you can start to see that shift happening anyway within companies, but really moving inclusion into the business because it is a competitive edge, as we've heard from the panel. Um, The second thing that has come up a lot, actually, is the idea of virtue signaling. And again, you know, I've, I've worked with lots of different companies in London. And if this were off record, I could tell you the ones who are virtue signaling versus the ones that aren't. But virtue signaling is a really dangerous practice where you have senior leaders who talk about diversity and inclusion. When push comes to shove, the high stakes outcomes, hiring, promotions pay, they really fall back into the status quo. Essentially, um, and I think what when Luffy and I went um, to um, uh, to leaders in Singapore to talk about inclusion, two things that were really striking came across from that for me. And I, I think Anna Lane is on the is on the call. I just see her enter the room. Who is the CEO of Women in Banking and Finance? And we had done a project um, in March that really reveals that what leaders in financial and professional services now want is to move inclusion from what we call the compliance phase, or I've called it the compliance phase, into the culture change phase. So, keeping the quotas, keeping the measurement, as Ida pointed out, it's really, really important, but augmenting that with this idea of inclusive leadership that I have just discussed and this really also came through in Singapore and what was really special about the Singapore um, work um, is that every leader that we met had actually managed global teams so some had experience in other countries but they were always managing global teams that often span multiple continents and that really came through in the Singapore as well you know this move from it can't just be about compliance it can't just be about measurement there needs to be a movement towards, towards this culture change also and then the other parts and I do hope that people will actually go and look at the report have actually been covered quite well by the panel. and I'm not surprised. So Philip has talked about, you know, cross-cultural understanding, and this really came through in the inclusion framework, that the next wave of leaders in global corporations, you know, like who are represented on on the call today, do need to have cross-cultural understanding. They do need to be able to have open conversations with their team, and they do need to be able to understand intersectionality in the way that they haven't in the past not because of it being socially responsible, but because for them as a leader, it's absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and I mentioned you know, the transparent framework that I worked on with Erica Brodnock. And one thing that came through with that is that there are people, and these are the voices of Black professional women, but I've heard this over and over again, there is diversity who are going into companies and they're being forced to adapt and assimilate and play to the strengths of the people who are already in the company. And you're probably losing your competitive advantage if you don't allow people actually be their authentic selves and play, play to their own strengths when they come into companies. And again, really coming through in the inclusion framework from Singapore, the same message that we need inclusive leadership who can nurture talent. Um, Special to Singapore was movement away from a command and control style leader where they are the decision maker, the person needs to agree with everything they say. And embracing this idea of what we call a humble leader where their job is to bring everybody in the team along and when they're bringing everybody in the team along being challenged as part of that and when they're being challenged to open their minds that actually the team members are acting in their best interest as the leader. So kind of this change from the person who's at the top of the room being in charge to somebody who can bring all voices along. And I think this really speaks to Ida what I just said about cultural differences and what silence means. Um, I think it also speaks to you know this kind of anglicized idea about what it means to do well in a global corporation is that you can speak very loudly for yourself um, and you know you, you can hold a room where you're not necessarily interrupted another thing again that we have to work on when it comes to inclusion is active listening so if you have all these people who are trying to speak within a meeting and get the attention of the leader they're probably not listening to their team members and again that competitive edge that we could have from having diverse people Listen to each other, create, innovate, and assess risk um, goes away. And that's it, Luffy. That's the summary of our – if I've left anything out, please do let me know. Um, I'm back to you.
1: Thank you, Grace. There is a a lot in the framework, and I'm hoping that by the time we're done, people will have memorised what I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O-N stand for uh, because it really is a very useful uh, way of framing it. Um, questions are coming in into the Q&A box, so I might go to that uh, shortly. But before I do that, and I was going to address this to one of the panelists, but I'm going to now open it up to whoever wishes to answer it. But it'll take me a minute or so to ask the question. And this is around numerical quota versus changing the culture so that it happens organically. Does one help the other? Does having numerical targets, quotas, um, usher along real change? Uh, does it help people hold themselves accountable, hold each other accountable? Or does it create a cosmetic fig leaf that suppresses real inclusion? And this is this has come up in tremendous detail uh, in some of these closed-door conversations that we've had. Uh, It links with this idea of tokenism, the virtue signaling that Grace just mentioned. Uh, Are you being authentic or are you ticking a box because there is a box to be ticked? I'll give you an extreme set of examples. In Singapore, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has a 28-member international advisory panel. They have zero women on that. The governing board has one woman. GIC has 18 members on the governing board, zero women on that. Temasek has zero women on the board now, I believe. Um, And their argument is, look, rather than parachute in somebody from outside, we're really bolstering the leadership team. And when you then look at the executive leadership team, it actually does look a lot more inclusive. So the argument seems to be that we will organically get there. Whereas if we parachute people in, who may be perceived not to be qualified, then you know, why do we do that? The other side of the argument is that you get proper gender parity when you have as many incompetent women in positions of authority as you have men, right? So why should that be? So that is the broad way I've positioned this. Who would like to take this question, quota versus not? Grace, can I come to you last so that you don't seat this conversation at this particular thread? Um, I'll come to Grace last if somebody else would like to take that.
4: Yeah, I'd love to jump in uh, if i if I may. I think that it it really has to be a combination of both, okay? So we truly believe, as I mentioned um earlier, that what gets measured gets done. So each of our leaders across our city businesses are held accountable for measurement. Um, and I think it is very important that we do that to continue to move the needle. Uh, But at the same time, when you think about the importance of getting the right representation, it doesn't happen overnight. So we have to think about everything. And I I, I know Grace mentioned this earlier about how some institutions really view this as a human resources uh, related strategy. It's not. It's a business led uh, in combination, in partnership with human resources to achieve the right goals and objectives. But that starts at the beginning when we hire into the organizations to make sure that we're getting the right representation straight out uh, when we're hiring new analysts and new individuals to join our organization. But equally important, we have to have a diverse interviewer slate um, to make sure that the folks that are interviewing with us as an organization recognize that we we are a diverse organization and that we do value and respect and, and encourage a, a diverse and inclusive um, organization. So it's both ways, diverse interviewer slates, diverse interviewee slates, starting at the beginning um, as, as, as a very important start starting point, and then also measuring all of our leaders across the organization on the progress that we're all making. I think it's given at the city culture, that it is something that we care deeply about as an organization. So it's not this inauthentic, so to speak, we understand the competitive edge that comes from having a diverse and inclusive um, culture and environment. Look at our board, we're 50% women, we have a woman leading city, and we have a very diverse executive management team here uh, at city as well. So we're we're making the right steps, uh, but uh, obviously still work to be done.
1: Thank you. Anyone else, uh, Davi? Yeah, maybe,
3: maybe I could jump in as well and just add to that. I mean, I'm a big believer in what gets measured gets managed. Totally, this is true of everything from climate. We measure the temperature because we want to know wh- where it is. It's it's true of just literally every aspect of life. You don't measure it, you don't. You tend not to manage it. it. Can be your personal weight. It can be your you know the time it takes you to run around the park. You measure the stuff and then you and then you improve. I, I think you know. I see the, the objection that you raised, Ludwig, uh, that you put up there as a you know a straw objection, if you like, and it's for me it's one of several cards that uh, that the system puts in place. The system plays it's like a card game, right? So if you go to um, the someone who's running a man, say, who's running an organisation with 18 men on the board, and you say, but this this doesn't look good, uh, he will typically play a bunch of cards. He's got five or six cards in front of him, and one card will be. Um, and this is about, true about race, it's true about gender, but it's a game in effect. And the game will be, card number one will be something like, look, we don't really have the data and we need to measure it. And until we have the data, this is classically in the race space. This is a classic card that gets played. We don't have the data. So I see what you say, but without the data, what am I supposed to do? Would be card number one. Card number two will be, look, we're on the case. We're trying, right? You know, we've put some stuff in place and we've, you know, we've, we've told HR that we want to fix this thing. And, you know, it takes time, right? So that's, you know, card number two. Card number three is, look, this is really, really complicated. It's a wicked problem. You can't expect something overnight. Uh, this is just, you know, it, it's going to fix itself in, in in due course. I promise you we're on the case. Card number four is, yeah, what happens if we hire a bunch of incompetent women or an incompetent black people? Then we'll just end up with lots of incompetent people. Card number five is, well, quotas, you know, who wants to talk about quotas? Quotas are not a good thing. You end up and on and on and on the card game goes. And guess what? You still end up with 18 men on the board. Or you still end up with 18 white guys or whatever it is. It's a card game, basically. And I think you have to call it out. And you have to say, we've tried this stuff. We've tried the waiting game. We have sat around and we have watched your strategy of watching it organically fix itself. And guess what, guys? It hasn't worked. So how about now we start measuring it? We know what good looks like. And let's actually, maybe we even start linking your compensation to the outcome. Because I'll say this. I think that... The last two decades have been what you might call the decades of the machine, the time of the machine, by which I mean this bad boy right here, right? Figuring this thing out as he changes the world. But now this decade is around culture. This decade is around getting the firms that we set up to be inclusive. And if we don't get that, and if you're running an organization with 18 men who run the entire place or whatever the stat was that you put out there, then basically your time is up, right? You have like a few, maybe a couple of years, two, three years you're going to get blown away, right? You're done. This—it's not going to work. You're going to be like Kodak. You're going to be like Blockbuster. You're going to be like any of those other guys who, you know, basically didn't realize that the cheese was the cheese was moving. So, uh, good to see that that I've got the passion
1: coming out. That was the whole goal of uh, putting a straw man out there. So, uh,
5: anyone else before I come to Grace, uh, Philip? Yeah, okay. So, um, I mean, very good question, and uh, I, th- I think that's uh, something we need to think about. Um, the point I'd make, and not necessarily referring to any particular organization, is um, what gets measured gets managed. So I'm, I'm, I'm with David on that. Um, I do run around the park and I do measure it, but it doesn't seem to get any better. So that's perhaps in a different category. Um, um, the, the key thing, though, is are we making progress? I think if you set a number and you get fixated on it's going to be 50% or it's going to be 60 or whatever, that's when it starts to skew off. But if you are better this year than last year, and every six months, or every year, you can demonstrate measurable progress, um, then I think you're moving in the right direction. So I wouldn't go so much in the direction of quotas, but it go in the direction of measuring things, definitely, and saying, have you made progress? If that number is zero year after year, then clearly, like what David says, I, I think we're not making progress. And we, we, we have to um, make measure the progress over meaningful time intervals, obviously not three months and not three years or five years, somewhere in between, and, and just say year by year, are, are you making progress in a direction? So that's what we've done, uh, for example, in, in, in the gender space within the bank. And we've closed gaps and we've uh, done some things and we've figured out where exactly the gaps come from. And if we need to be more targeted about closing the gaps in particular areas, I mentioned technology, for example, that's something that we're really very actively looking at and seeing what we can actually do. So I go a little away from quotas, but more towards measurement, and setting targets for improvement. So that's slightly more. Bear and then Grace.
2: Okay, perfect. So look, I mean, most of uh, what what is important has been said. I think the the, the data availability to to make improvements on on the, the diversity and inclusion is very important, and I think by now probably all our peers have had that. On quotas, I mean, you know, I, I've i been somebody that have changed her mind, in this case, my mind about quotas, right? I, I think as a young you know, professional um, and somebody that I said, I never felt like a diverse employee in any ways. I always thought I'm totally part of the, the crowd. Uh, it was really difficult for me to admit that at times, not everybody feels like that, and some of the examples that you guys have been brought, bringing up here today is clear that you know everybody. This is a very personal, uh, you know, matter, right? How people uh behave how much do they speak up how much do they want to be in the uh, you know out there being seen as uh, somebody that is vocal about certain things is that good for my career bad for my career depending on the background you have um and whether you know from a cultural point of view you will feel like you can contribute and therefore you know be part of the team is different for everybody and you know the comments about Uh, training managers to be inclusive, to ask the question about, Bea, what do you think about this? This is your area of expertise. I think it's a very, very important part. So for us here at UBS, I mean, we've been giving uh, managers targets to improve Precisely what what Philip was describing, but these are very clear improvements on the current data. We are giving them data on a regular basis, so they can manage that and improve that, and we hold them to account for that. But at the same time, I think the educational part of it is a very important one. The cultural, um, you know, kind of uh, evolution is very important because it's not up to me as the you know UK chief exec to you know just move my magic wand and make it happen. It's up to everybody that hires. Based, promotes, um, you know, and, and to, to make the difference and think hard whether there is any diverse candidate that could be, you know, the one that could ne- take the next role. So it, it is about, you know, everybody and the cultural part of it has to change.
1: Thank you. Grace, finally, I'm sorry to... difficult oh,
0: sure. I mean, a lot of what I wanted to say was covered. I mean, I just want to say two short things. I think on quotas, people either always like quotas or dislike quotas Obviously, if we had cultural change and we had representation that happened mechanically, that would be better. And I think in the absence of that, having a quota is a really good thing. So if I'm a woman and I'm hired onto a panel, Because I'm a quota, the chances of my voice being diminished are higher, right? So people are less likely to listen to me. Those 18 people who you spoke about are probably likely to discount my opinion. And then it comes down to whether or not I'm tenacious enough to withstand that, keep talking, keep getting my views across, be a really good role model for the people in the company, and bring other people who are below me along. And that's how I feel about tokens. People always say, Do you like or dislike tokens? And I say, Who is the token? So if the token is going to be somebody who's going to adapt, sit with the 18 people, agree with them, then, you know, it's pointless having a woman sitting at that table or another underrepresented person. However, if you have somebody who's going to go in, have the hard conversations, keep talking, you know, really bring along progress, a token can be a wonderful thing for a company that's not doing anything else at this particular moment in time. So if they told me the token was you, Latvi, I would be very, very happy because I know the progress would actually be made, for example. But if they told me that it was somebody who was, you know, on the golf trips, you know, out in the out having dinner, regardless of their diversity in appearance, I wouldn't be that satisfied with it. So, again, I don't think we should think of these things as all or nothing. We should ask who's filling the quotas and who is the token?
1: Absolutely. So it's a false binary. And as you say uh, all the time, context matters. Yes. Situations. Looking at the Q&A box to see if we could uh, take some questions from there. Um, there's a question from Dr. Jasmine Viria of the TII, and the question is for Ida. How do you think South Asians can assist East Asians in breaking the bamboo ceiling?
4: That's a, actually an excellent question, and I'm really delighted that you brought that up. Uh, because when I alluded to the fact that there are only a few percent uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who are Asian, all of those happen to be South Asians versus East Asians. So there are some nuances even between and within our AAPI, Asian, you know, Asian American uh, Pacific uh, Islander group. So when you look at that and you look at generally now I'm overgeneralizing here, uh, the differences and the nuances between the East and South Asians is that That again, a lot of that is somewhat cultural. Um, And as I alluded to earlier, the East Asians are often taught to be quiet, put your head down, work hard, and assume that good things will happen, you'll get tapped on the the shoulder for the next promotion, which we all know just doesn't simply happen. Um, So I think it is about a couple of different things, you know, awareness, of the cultural differences. I think awareness of the cultural differences for all the different individuals, right? It's not just, we're not just talking about East and and, uh, South Asians here, but just awareness in general about some of the cultural nuances uh, with differing employees. I think secondly, You know, one of the things about that stereotype of silent minority, I just wanted to share a a brief story with you all um, that I was exactly that stereotype when I was growing up. I was the quiet student that worked hard. I never spoke up. I was scared to speak publicly. I was actually petrified of public speaking. And a speech teacher in high school changed my life because she forced me out of my comfort zone to speak up, have a voice and advocate for myself. And she changed my life forever. I would not be in the seat I am today had it not been for her and her willingness to push me above and beyond my comfort zone to help me find a voice to be able to advocate for myself. And so when I think about my personal journey and I recognize the importance of that voice at the table, You know, you're at the table for a reason. You have to be vocal. You have to use that voice. And oftentimes, frankly speaking, the East Asian population just does not, right? Because we're scared to, or we're we're more reserved, or we just want to do our job really well and get recognized for it. Um, And so those are some of the nuances that we've seen and that we're trying to coach because, boy, do we have a lot of Asians in middle management, But when you look at the senior ranks in the EMT, that drops off dramatically as you've seen, all of us on this call have seen. So what are the things that we need to do knowing this to prepare, to arm, to train, to develop, the middle management to help them break through the ceiling? So those are the things that we are looking at extensively in programs that we're putting together to help.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Aida. Uh, David, there's a question for you from Charles Sherwood. David, you once said to me, "Having different genders and skin colours in the same room does not necessarily give you diversity." What did you really see as the essence of diversity?
3: Uh, that's a great question, uh, and uh, yeah, glad to see Charles is on. Charles is on the call. Great friend, great friend of mine. So, look, I mean, I think, like I said, this is a wicked problem, and I think a lot of organisations don't really understand. What they're trying to solve, right? When it comes to generating profits, or it comes to you know, running running their asset liability division better, they that they understand. They've done that. But this is kind of snuck up a little bit on a lot of leadership and they don't really get it. So for them, as long as they see more brown people wandering around, or they have uh one black person now in some position of semi-leadership, well, then they feel like they've ticked the box. But that my point is that, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it, right? This is a cultural rewiring you've got to completely think you've got to think completely differently Uh, and you've got to envisage a world where all of your norms are turned on their head. So, you know, like I was just saying, you know, we all take our our pictures now on this, right. You know, we don't use, none of us uses cameras with film in it uh, anymore, but if you'd gone to Kodak 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whenever it was, and you'd said, you know, what does the future look like for them? It was more glossy film or it was getting more pictures on a roll of film or it was whatever it was, but they never saw this coming. Right. And I think it's the same with culture. I think a lot of the organizations, Right now, that are looking at this don't really understand the seismic shift that is required. Partly because I don't think they understand the way the next generation thinks. People like my daughter, who's 26, and my sons, who are 29 and 22, they think fundamentally differently to the way even of my generation think. I don't like unfairness; I hate it. But my kids see it on a different level altogether. Right? They are made vis- it is visceral for them. They, you know, they they kind of throw up when they see unfairness across every vertical, and that's coming through, right? You know, they're going to be, in 10 years' time, they're going to be running these organizations. And we can either get ready for that and make sure that the handover and the transition is smooth, or we can, you know, or we not. So I think it's about understanding it. And I'll just give you one very quick example, if I may rattle through this. So I talk, talked about Grace, who was invisible in, you know, not, not, not visible in plain sight. But then this is a story about Josie. And Josie was talking to me. She's a lawyer. She's smart. She's young. She's black. And she was taken on by a magic circle firm, Two or three years ago and they you know they solicited her they brought her in and they paid her pretty well and at the same time they brought in a couple of other guys who were more what you might call usual suspects i think one had been to cambridge one had been to harvard uh very kind of usual suspect as you might expect into a magic circle firm and josie was saying to me that it was kind of strange because she was working hard and she was being paid well and then she discovered that one of these guys maybe both of them let's call one of them jake was just moving faster than she was, got promoted a bit quicker, got paid a bit more. It's like a travelator at the airport. One is just moving ahead. And no matter what she did, this guy was just kind of taking off. And then he got promoted and he was kind of way, way, way out in front of her. And she said it all, the light came on when she was at a dinner, listening to the senior partner of the firm talking. And she realized he was talking about Jake and he was talking about him like he was his father and like Jake was his son. There was a kind of paternalism about him and he'd broken off a bit of his practice and he kind of got him ready for promotion and he'd shown him how to be in meetings and told him what to work on and taken him into a government discussion. He was literally shepherding this guy through to greatness. He'd obviously looked at him. And at one point, the guy, the senior partner said, he reminds me of myself. And she said, it's interesting. There's no one in the firm who looks at me and thinks she reminds me of myself. First of all, I'm a woman and there are no women at the top. Secondly, I'm black. There's no one black in the firm. And the fact is, no one was looking at her, shepherding her or guiding her. And the more I thought about it, it kind of reminded me of this idea of marginal gains, which is this idea that you just do a few things slightly better than everyone else. And then you, and then you win the game, right? Whether it's in, it doesn't matter whether it's cycling or competition, whatever it is, you do everything a little bit better, you, it all starts to add up. And I was thinking what Josie had there or didn't have rather, what Jake had were marginal gains, right? The senior partner was just benefiting him with these little marginal gains across his career, and it was all kind of adding up, and he was just moving faster. And I think that's what we do in our systems and in our, in our, in our organizations. So to Charles's point, it's not just about who you hire in and having a few, more, you know, uh, a few more people who look a bit different. It's a much, much bigger gig about looking at the Josies of this world and about taking her through the organization, and about working out who you're going to bring in—not just usual suspects—and then kind of drop them in and just kind of leave them, leave them there. So, you know, I'll I'll, I'll pause there. Thank you, David. Um, next
1: question is from Asha Raza Durai, postgraduate student, LSC Behavioral Science. What about ageism? Discrimination against people fifty? Um, not being taken seriously. Is that an issue
3: in the industry, in this industry? I'll just jump in super quick. It's definitely an issue, no doubt about it. And look, you know, although I look at things through often through a race lens, because of my heritage, I'm half black, half white. The reality is I'm really concerned about across the piece. So, I mean, yeah, I'll just say, yes, it's absolutely an issue. There are a lot of people in their 50s and 60s. I run a few conferences, and last week I ran a conference they're about 50 they're all men they're all in their early 60s and when you talk to them there's real trauma as they realize that you know they haven't figured out what comes next i think there's a real generation there and we we definitely need to be thinking about that totally
0: i think the other way around as well luftfi you know the the idea that somebody who is um, south of 50 can't be on a board or can't be kind of in senior management is still really prevailing in financial professional services sector while the sector is actually getting, you know, revolutionized with technology where younger people generally have a comparative advantage given how fast technology is moving as they're coming out of of university. So I think the generations is again, you know, next to some other topics like disability, one that's spoken about too little. And, And I think the question specifically asks about initiatives against ageism and I don't know any. I don't know any company that is, is, tackling generations in a way that we're looking at gender in the way that we're looking at um, ethnicity in the way that we're looking at underrepresentation. under underrepresentation. But I agree that I think it's going to be a topic for the future.
1: That's right. I guess bias is bias, whichever way you cut it. Um, and lack of inclusion is lack of inclusion. So if there is a way to frame or nurture an organization culture that takes it at the level of bias and at the level of inclusion without talking necessarily about categories of people, then maybe that would be um, more impactful. Question from Tess Kurian. Uh, This is something that Philip mentioned when it comes to uh, the fact that King's College uh, hunted in schools that others were not doing. Um, The questioner seems to be saying that it's kind of easy to accept qualified candidates when they are qualified, but how about those that may not be there with their level of education? So equity, access of, of the right kind of uh, education. Is there something maybe, Grace, you, you want to take that that can be done to make sure that inclusion starts even before we hire?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, universities in general have a really um, big responsibility to think about their scholarship programs and what they're offering to people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds to take down the financial barriers to go for university. Um, I think that needs to go beyond just paying for the ticket to university and actually giving these kids who have skills, talent and ability in equal measures to the other kids who are going in to university access to monies that will allow them not have to work part time, not have to work during the summer so they can have exactly the same experience interning like other students. And you know, I'm really proud to say the first type of program like this has come to the LSE thanks to Lance Ugle, one of our alumni. I am the scholars' mentors and this scholarship program offers exactly what I just described. It's not just about the ticket price into university. It's bringing skills, talented and kids who are extraordinarily able um, into the LSE and, and giving them the exact same experience as as their peers. And I think that's, re- I think that's really important. I think the other thing that's important, um, and Philip has, has, has mentioned this, is the pipeline problem. So, you know, STEM still does have a pipeline problem with too few women, for example, choosing to study the STEM subjects as compared to men. I think downstream, we really need to talk to kids about their opportunities from as early as, you know, five six, seven, eight, nine, normalizing being an engineer as well as a nurse if you're a girl and normalizing being a nurse as well as an engineer if you're a boy. So that by the time we meet them at 15, 16, 17, and they're making their choices, they don't have entrenched social norms. And I think what's really interesting is most countries in the world have these entrenched social norms, if we compare boys to girls, um, and they do come about as the kids are growing. So it's something about the societies that they're actually growing up in. So, again, I think downstream really good education programs on careers that opens up options that aren't biased in any direction is well worth investing in.
1: And there, I think UBS has an apprenticeship program and the further education colleges that you guys go to. We do. yeah,
2: so so UBS actually has the bridge Academy, which is a school where we actually um, you know support all, a, a very deprived area very near to our office, in fact, in uh, Soldage, but you know uh, from from a social economic background, so deprived or or social economic background. and we have been very passionate about that. For us, it's a great opportunity to get our employees engaged. Uh, we have the governors of the school. We do quite a lot of uh, tutoring uh, in the mornings in this building before, now with COVID less so. But, you know, if you can play piano, if you're good at maths, uh, or if you are uh, brilliant in English, then you can support the kids uh, throughout uh, throughout that time. Uh, we talk about career prospects. We, we take them here as well for a six, uh, six weeks uh, kind of Internship uh, time when they are around 14, so that they can see what we do and they get familiar with uh, what the bank is doing is definitely something that uh, we we support very strongly, and I think for us a very very important part of what we do here in the UK. And the apprenticeship program, of course, thanks to you know the government uh, support, by the way, uh, with the apprenticeship levy, um, this has been a huge success for us, and you know again it has brought us to uh, maybe a. You know age brackets that we were not used to uh as well very different ideas and perspectives uh, from those employees as well and frankly our experience has been excellent over the last years that we've been doing it so
1: are they are they going into permanent jobs
4: and
2: yes yes they are going into permanent jobs uh when they are in the apprenticeship program they need to deserve some time to uh you know learning as well and and developing their skills uh, right. We also offer internally some of the courses on you know, Codera and you know, coding and more IT type of uh, skill sets, obviously. But, you know, definitely most of them stay as permanent employees after the apprenticeship program. Yes. Some of them go to university, though. They change their mind later, which is also not bad. And we try to support them to that as well. So,
1: I see two more questions. One from Arun, one from Elizabeth. So Arun's question, maybe I'll direct it to... Uh, Ida, uh, if I may, so he's asking, he's saying that currently we have limited gender representation in key decision-making roles in climate finance. Women only make up 19% of both the IMF and World Bank boards, he says. Given our urgent need for cognitive diversity to address climate change challenges, what steps can our financial services industry take to address this imperative situation?
4: That's a great question. And uh, I think very uh, relevant given the COP26 uh, discussions that we've all seen over the last couple of weeks. So um, it is absolutely imperative and critical that we all do our part as it pertains to the E, the S and the G. Uh, and here we're talking about the E. Um, and as you've probably seen from us at City on uh, Jane's first day on the job, she announced that City would do its part to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. I think what is very evident from the COP26 conversations is that leadership in the financial services space has been quite outstanding in terms of what we are committing to as a group to make sure we are doing our part to improve, uh, uh, uh you know, the, the, the environmental uh, aspects of our footprint around the world. Um, in terms of gender representation, as it pertains to the initi- initiatives and efforts here, um, I don't think it's any different from gender representation and any other aspect of what we've been talking about in that we definitely need more uh, gender representation and more uh, diverse opinions and perspectives. So we're all going to be focused on that. And I think that the the most evident picture was when they had the photo of all the world leaders at COP26 and there were only a few, unfortunately, women represented there. Right. So um, so clearly work to be done there too, but uh, suffice to say that we are very pleased at Citi, and I know that Bea and others and the organizations around the world that we're all focused on this as a a front and center plate of what we're doing, Um, not only because it's a must do, uh, but also because our clients expect that and demand that from uh, the financial services organizations as well.
1: Thank you. Um, The next question is from Elizabeth Stephen. I will read out the question, see whoever wishes to answer that. Elizabeth is a member of LSE council. Um, Question is how forceful should clients be when they're faced with a non-diverse team that has come to them uh, for business? So she says, I've been involved in a few M&A transactions and these investment banks and law firms, they would send a team of advisors, very non-diverse, I had hoped that times had moved on, but they clearly haven't. How forceful should clients be in those situations?
2: Well, I'll give it a try then. So look, very forceful. And we have in fact been getting some feedback from clients that they would like to see more diverse teams in the pitching teams when we go and do M&A or, You know, when we um, when we see clients, I do believe that, you know, um, particularly and I'm sure I will be able to to comment, particularly in the private banking space. I think clients expect, you know, to see somebody that uh, thinks like them, looks like them, you know, have similar, um, I don't know, Needs or, you know, understanding and, and those when you when you see people, I think, you know, what, what David was describing before, I can see myself in you. That's why I kind of almost sponsor you through your career. Right. Those types of um emotional um, you know, kind of bindings also happen with clients, right? And so I think clients do demand people that look like them or that understand their background or you know, are similar uh, to them. And as banks, I think we, we ought to offer them that, right?
4: And if I could just add yeah. on to that, Lufti, um, one of the client meetings that I had recently, the client commented to me that, I really appreciate that your team resembles the United Nations. And I took that as a massive compliment. Um, and at that, I believe, as I mentioned at the very onset of this conversation, is our competitive differentiator. It's our talent, it's our diversity, it's our inclusiveness. Um, and we have to mirror the clients that we serve to Bea's point. And in particular in private banking, you have to remember that women are going to control 30 trillion of wealth over the next decade. And it you, you have to understand that you know there, there is a huge opportunity where if if we have the right approach with the right team uh with the right uh diversity represented there there's there's no question we're going to do better and we're going to continue to outperform in that uh, in that aspect
0: i think if I could add yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luffy, and, and thank you, Elizabeth, for the question who I know and, and, and I like very much. I, I I absolutely agree with the panel. I mean, supply chain management is one of the best tools for, for diversity and inclusion. And I think if companies are saying within their walls that they care about diversity and inclusion, they should be managing their supply chain and asking questions about their suppliers and changing suppliers if the supplier isn't actually keeping up with the times, you know. So I think it, it can not only hurt the company with respect to competitive advantage, but there is reputation damage for engaging with companies who stubbornly refuse to address diversity and inclusion problems when we know that it is actually a competitive advantage. So so I I, I echo the comments that it should be very strongly sent back to the homogeneous team.
5: I think it goes even further than that because sometimes you would have, um, let's say, a model minority person on the team. And to Ida's point earlier on, that person might be quiet. That's the analyst who sits in the corner and that's the numbers. And I think as a client, you can actually bring that person out of the shell, yeah. show that you value their contribution in the meeting. And that alone, that signal will actually tell the boss or whoever's leading the meeting that, hey, we value these people. They bring something to the table. And that would speak even more to my mind that every time you have a conversation, you try and draw these quiet people in the room, whether you're on the client side or internal meetings. If, if you follow that same principle, I think it,
3: it, it, uh, it basically helps get to a better outcome. And I think, just if I can jump in and I know time's marching, but I would just say that I think it's worth remembering that this is, this conversation is all within the context of ESG, right? And, you know, we take the E very seriously, you know, our good friend, Rob Gardner, I was just telling you about, you know, he's just replaced four huge managers, well, managers uh, managing a huge amount of money at St. James's place. Uh, And he switched, he just switched them basically. Why? Because, They didn't have a sensible story in the E-space, right? You know, when he asked them, what are you doing on climate? They just kind of mumbled. So he said, okay, you're not the future. You're not the future. You're not the future. You're not the future. You're all out. These are like big guys. He replaced them all. And that's a wake-up call for them, right? Next time they'll have a story. And this is the S in ESG. This is the social piece that a lot of organizations think is an optional extra. It's not. And you're going to find out, is my point, that if you don't have your G and you don't have your E, okay, you're going to be in trouble, the time is the door is now, right? You know, the, the S is just as important, and you need to have. You know, this is not just about. So you do send a very strong signal back, which is this isn't good enough. Next time you send a, t- a team, don't let it look like this. And by the way, diversity is not just about gender, right? It's about more than that. It's about. A, I think that's the other problem. A lot of organizations think, you know, well, provided we put like three women on a team of six, while well, we've ticked that box. Well, not necessarily. It depends who's asking the question, right? so it's it is complex.
2: I want to say one thing and maybe uh, give a shout out to all, you know, men allies as well, because I know we always speak about, you know, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, in whatever form, social background, you know, all of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I do think that you do not have to be any of those things in order to be diverse and inclusive. Right. And that is a very, very important point for me because you know we do have a lot of people that take this agenda extremely seriously we do have a lot of men that are extremely important allies vital allies for all of us to you know execute on this agenda to continue you know the, the progress that we've done and the danger is that they feel disengaged in this you know kind of uh, in this journey and that, for me, is something that we can't allow to happen, right? So, to all of those, I think it's really important to to say thank you so much for you know everything you do at UBS, for, for my ones at least. But in general, in the industry, I can see that a lot, and I'm super grateful that you know we can count on uh, non diverse in any way. Everybody's diverse in some sort of way, right? We are all unique, so that's the way I
4: I kind of think about it. I have to say say that um, I completely agree with Bea. And um, I must say that allyship is one of the most important things to advancing diversity inclusion uh, because, you know, we we can't just be a group of women in the room advocating for women. We need our men to to support and partner with us as well. And likewise for all of the other groups too, right, in thinking about that. So Bea, absolutely spot on. Allyship is so incredibly important. That's why when we look at our affinity networks at City, we, we usually have a man and a woman leading. City woman, for example, uh, and and I couldn't agree agree more. So I just uh, wanted to mention that. Wonderful.
0: These are the inclusive leaders, Luffy. So I feel we are we are full circle, right? So these are the leaders who bring voices to the table. Who, as Philip said, if there's somebody in the room who isn't participating, that they're that they're actually bringing them in, and who are managing supply chains and asking questions about mm-hmm. diversity that goes beyond, beyond gender. And, you know, there are um, lots of men who are practising that. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that's what we need to be looking for. Who are the people who are the inclusive leaders in organisations?
1: Right. Um, there's a very long question, which I will try and, and stylize and actually just add to that uh, on my own. And I'm going to say it very slowly so it gives you a bit of time to think of the answer. So, cast your mind back to your own careers. And think of two situations. One, in which someone you worked with had an unconscious bias about you and and they changed. So what was that? And then flip it around. Think of a situation where you had an unconscious bias about somebody else. What was it? And how did you realize it and changed that? Who would like to go first?
3: I'll jump in. Okay. And, uh, and I'll just talk about, uh, this is quite a recent thing for me, but I was mentioning earlier that I run, I run a couple of conferences and as, as such we have speakers who come and talk. And one of the people who came to talk, has been I, um, I've gotten to know her pretty well now, is a trans woman by the name of Paris Lees. And if you'd asked me about a year ago what I knew about the trans community, I literally knew virtually nothing apart from what I read in the media. But now I've become quite good friends with trans, uh, with, with with Paris and with trans people, you know, maybe three or four, and I've gotten to understand their journey, and it's been transformational. I mean, I understand that community in a way that is just completely rewritten, not so much my unconscious biases, but I had a set of beliefs and narratives in my head, which I've been, which I've completely rewritten now, and... And I have to say that it just came from hearing, you know, Paris's story and hearing other people's stories. And you know, I have a godson who's going through that through 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 that whole journey now, and hearing his story. And it's a big, you know, I I think a lot of it is about hearing other people. So yeah, I've definitely been through that. And I would say where I am now, just in the just in the trans discussion, is a big lesson to me that you know I had all these narratives. I thought I kind of understood it, uh, but I didn't. Is the truth. And I think that's true for a lot of different. You know, areas where I don't know nothing about it, but I kind of feel like, yeah, I'm sure I know. I've read a bit about it. So, you know, how hard can it be? Not until you hear people talk about it and you really get involved and you think, I need to get involved in this. I need to understand it. I need to immerse myself in this. You suddenly find, ah, oh, I didn't understand it at all. Thank you. It.
1: Anyone else? I,
0: I can go. <laughs> So I, I think for me, Luffy, it's, and it actually has come up a couple of times in, in the conversation today, I was at, w- at one stage of my career where I was in a meeting and a colleague never spoke during the entire meeting. And I remember being at like a social gathering and I said to her, why are you just so disengaged in the meeting? And she, you know, this is kind of at the start of my career. And, and she said to me, you know, I've, I've been here for eight years before you and every time I speak nobody listens to me. So it's, you know, people talk over me. My points are never taken in the meeting. So it's actually rational for me to stop speaking. And up to that point, I really thought that she was just disengaged, but this was actually somebody who rationally thought, what's the point in actually speaking in that meeting if nobody is actually going to talk to her? And at the same time, I actually had a, um, an ally who was at the um, w- where I was at the time, and I, and I mentioned it to him actually, speaking about male allies, that this was actually happening to her within the meeting, and he began to pave the way for her to kind of speak again. But had I not had that conversation and questioned why she were disengaged in that moment, I never would have actually learned that it was more about the culture in that meeting, which I will actually actually say I was ignorant of, but once she pointed it out to me, I could see it. Um, and it was kind of a self-defense mechanism for her and kind of a rational action in the word of economists rather than somebody who didn't actually want to show up at work. And it kind of now, since then, anyone who doesn't speak at meetings, I not only ask them about it, like, is it, is it, is it your choice or is it is there kind of something that I can, can do to enable that? but I don't rush to the conclusion that this is just a disengaged employee. I actually give it the benefit of the doubt to somebody has taken their voice away, which I think is really important given what we're talking about today.
1: Thank you, Grace. So um, I'll move on. Um, and if people would like to answer the question later, you're welcome to do so. Um, I want to go back to this framework that we spoke about at the start, which is neatly summarized in this inclusion um, acronym, I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O-N. And if I could take maybe two minutes to just very quickly rattle through what each of these is supposed to mean and see if it triggers something in people's minds, either people who want to ask questions about them or any of the panelists who may want to uh, bring them up. Uh, But it resonates, uh, I think you will find, with many of the things that have been discussed so far. So here goes, the eye of um, inclusion is for inclusive leadership. And this is the most important point I think that's come out today, which is that inclusive leadership is a thing in its own right. It isn't other types of leadership, it's inclusive leadership. So we train for inclusive leadership. When we get promoted because of our technical prowess, we need to be able to provide it with training and inclusive leadership. And that's all the way down from how to conduct meetings to being mindful of some of the cultural nuances and so on. In the report, you'll find some amazing quotes from people uh, that have brought out instances where they felt that I wish the leader had done something marginally different. It would have had a Compounded effect, positive effect on the outcome. The N is norms in hiring, so this is a manifestation of of biases uh, that happens can happen at hiring, pre-hiring, during hiring, appraising, and how we reward and promote people. And there are ways of just being aware of the most common biases that we that we are prone to, and to design processes so that we don't fall prey to the biases that we know exist. those situations c is the cross-cultural layer and many of the examples we have and the quotes we have are the new york asia nexus new york hong kong new york um uh, singapore there seems to be an assumption in the global hubs that there is only one way of doing things that the fact that silence can mean different things in different culture you could be sitting in a risk committee meeting and someone doesn't voice out a concern doesn't mean he or she agrees that there is no risk here. That cultural layer is extremely important and perhaps is underappreciated. And in the context of Singapore, the role of cultural intermediaries came out quite a bit that you often need people in between were mediating between uh, cultures. What comes after C, it com- uh, it's L. So L stands for long-term perspective. And this is an acknowledgement that there are sometimes short-term trade-offs and costs involved in pursuing diversity and inclusion. Having a diverse slate um, of potential interviewees may take longer, maybe more of a hassle. Do you have a quarterly p target to meet? What's the exchange rate between the two? Does the organization culture understand and appreciate that this is a long-term game and that you should not succumb to the short-term trade-offs so after L it's U. U stands for understanding the benefits they sound a bit like pepper pig which has been in the in the press recently um, understanding the benefits of inclusion uh, this has come up a lot which is that uh, people assume that the the point that Ida made that we regard it as a competitive advantage, Is not necessarily shared or well understood. People don't, at times, genuinely feel enthused and motivated by the benefits of inclusion. So, talking about the intrinsic value of inclusion—that's that's that's one. Otherwise, people would treat it as a compliance thing, which can then breed apathy. Next is S, and S stands for salient. Making salient your impact of. Conclusion that you're doing, you're pursuing in your business, the impact you're having in the supply chain with your clients, with the society at large, the uh, the ecosystem as a whole, uh, this going beyond the firm and making salient the impact on society and the supply chain seems to be very important, particularly in a lower down the hierarchy. I stands for incentives. Are the incentives aligned and are they consistent? Uh, with what you're trying to achieve? Is there alignment between words, tone, and deeds? What comes after I? Uh, O O stands for opportunities. So this is about access. How do you as leaders make access available to people, opportunities available to people? Is it just easiest, easy to give the promotion to whoever asks for it the loudest? Uh, Or uh, do you really check yourself, catch yourself, uh, to to not fall for that sort of easy uh, ways around it. So, um, are the entry doors to opportunities too narrow? Structurally, can we design processes so that opportunities uh, are more uh, equal? And then the last is N. What does N stand for? Any guesses, anyone? N stands for Narratives. And this is about are you telling the stories, are we framing the narrative in a way that moves people towards inclusion? The personal stories, some of which that I heard today, I wish people heard more of those in the company town halls, in the various meetings, where the objective is inspiration. So the objective is to move people emotionally towards it, where the stories of inclusion or the stories of lack of inclusion and the outcomes that they have resulted in. Are we telling the stories, engaging in the narratives in an authentic way, or is it prepackaged PR comms and therefore, you know, not really having an impact? So that is your uh, inclusion acronym. I will stop here.
2: If I may say so, thank you, look. I, I thought it was it's really good uh, acronym, actually, I think it it probably touches everything that we've been uh, talking about today. For me, the opportunities and the access available is one where you touch a lot of you know the hiring, the promotion, the sponsorship, the pipeline, you know the plans, the strategic you know um, growth and improvement on the metrics and the data. That is a very important one. All of them are really very important. But for me, the opportunity is the one where, you know, you, we need to focus more on somehow.
1: Right. Thank you. Anyone else?
4: Yeah, Grace, would all you like all to? Of the acronyms are incredibly important and spot on. I think we've all discussed them throughout the conversation today. The last point you touched on, the narrative, I think it's, Absolutely true, lifty that seeing is believing. And the more that we increase the representation, the more that people will believe it's possible, the more that people will see that we're moving in the right direction. So to your point, that narrative, the storytelling, and what people see is incredibly important because you can do a lot of talking, but if it's not happening, you're not going to make the progress. That's right.
5: Grace? Grace. Oh.
0: Philip, yeah, you, yeah,
5: you go. Oh, thank you. Um, I go for the leadership piece really, not just in the context of we as leaders, but remembering that most of us have leaders under us who are themselves leaders. So how do we look for diverse styles of leadership? And how do we look for the quiet person who has a different style of leadership? And you know, my favorite quote on leadership is the five types of leader where the first they hate, the second they respect the third they they love, and and so on and so forth. And the best leader of all is the one who the people say they've done it all by themselves. So that's a very Asian thing. And so what I just said, a lot of us sort of embody that trait. Um, How do we look out for people like that? How do we bring them also into the conversation? And that will also increase diversity. So ourselves as leaders and looking for diversity, but also looking for diversity in leadership styles in those who are leaders and and perhaps, you know, reporting to us and and so on within the organization. Absolutely.
1: Grace.
0: You know, I'm I'm an economist, so I always am drawn to incentives, and I think you know having some partial part of the incentives that are actually linked to the team and their progress with respect to DNI makes a lot of sense. We've already heard my thoughts on supply chain management, and I think particularly with respect to the S and ESG, one of the things that we're trying to do in the inclusion initiative is really measure the S. And the reason that we want to measure the S is because we do think that customers will care whether or not a company is um, caring about inclusion and diversity. But ultimately, we also think investors will care, particularly investors who take this kind of medium to long run, long run perspective. And, you know, I think a lot of the inertia often comes down to a narrative, actually. People will talk about clients' preferences or customers' preferences or the shareholders' preferences. And I think putting that to the test could be really, really interesting if we show people, the link between the S, PL, creativity, innovation, we show that that actually links over the medium and the long run, and we let them then place their money based on the data that we actually put in front of them. So again, if we think about the different levers that we can pull, I think measuring the S in ESG is one that hasn't been explored fully in the same way that the E has.
1: Right. And, and for me, the learning, again, coming from a more traditional macroeconomics background, Uh, where I like to think in terms of, you know, universal rules and universal policies. Um, The fact that here we're talking about experimentation, trying things out, see what works, crank up what does, and, you know, bring down what doesn't. The fact that there are local contexts, regional contexts, global contexts, um, its systems change, so it doesn't happen with one firing of a silver bullet, it's the turning of the flywheel over and over again. Um, The fact that a single global policy rolled out uniformly may not be appropriate, particularly if you've got major centers in the multinational. That culture of trial and error and experimentation and data gathering, um, being honest about effectiveness or otherwise of, of policies, that to me was new, frankly, in the last one year that I've been Uh, involved with the Inclusion Initiative, and I think also in the industry, I feel now that openness, which perhaps wasn't there until a few years ago, where here's the policy, you know, execute on it. Here's the dashboard, come back, fill up the dashboard and send it upstream. That used to be the culture. So that's quite encouraging for me to see. Um, We have almost come to the end of our time. Um, A one last round, if anyone would like to make any Uh, Any pressing, closing comments?
0: I I just want to say one thing, Luffy. So for everyone listening, I do think inclusion starts with them. So very often we look to the companies, we look to the brand. And I think today, for me, the idea of the inclusive leader, maybe you can't change the organisation, but you can definitely change the culture within your team and bring along talent, equalising opportunities. And then we don't see the downstream outcomes, pay and promotions being as severe as they are today.
3: David, I saw you wanted to say something. Yeah, I was just going to very quickly say you very kindly mentioned with be at the start that I've been, I was one of the co-founders of a platform called 10,000 Black Interns. And what we've done there is we've reached out to not just the asset management space where we started, but now to 24 different sectors. And we've asked a very simple question, which is, would you take on a, a Black graduate for a six-week internship? You pay them um, the minimum living wage or better. So it's not, you know, it's not arduous from your perspective. Would you take on just one? And we've done that across so many sectors that we now have 2,000 internships on offer. We've had 10,000 applicants and we're good to go. So um, 10,000 black interns is over the next five years, 2,000 in five years. And a lot of people look at it and kind of like, well, how did how did you make that happen? Like, you know, not just me, but the team. How? It's kind of, it's pretty big and pretty amazing uh, in terms of impact and it's hugely scalable. And the simple answer is that we kind of took a leaf out of the book of, I don't know if any of you know, Clay Shirky, but Clay Shirky is a writer in the U.S., Um, The book is a bit dated now, but he wrote a book called Here Comes Everybody. And in that book, he talks about, he kind of wrote it at the the dawn of the internet, but his point was, we now have a technology and we're now entering an age where everyone can start to work together in a way we've never seen before. That's what underpinned 10,000 Black interns was everybody came to the party. Like we thought maybe if we ask a hundred, maybe 20 would say yes. Everybody said yes. And then we kept going and then 200 said yes. And we kept going to 750, everybody said yes. And I do think that, Maybe if I was just to close, I would just round out with this that if we can just end, have, have a place where everybody is coming together in all our industries and are saying, we need to change this and having conversations like this and locking hands, then I think change actually starts. Suddenly, you're okay. You know, you, you have a movement, the flywheel that you talked about, Ludfi, starts, okay. starts to move. And that
1: is a terrific note to end on. I just want to thank um, all of the panelists. Philip, it's 10 30 PM. You're in the office. Thank you, especially to you, um, Ida, as the start of your day. So thank you to all of you for giving us your your extremely valuable time. It's been a terrific um, learning experience for me and I'm sure a wonderful experience for our audience. So, Until next time, take care and bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE
3: Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out
0: what's on next we hope you join us at another lse event soon